I've covered the murdered and the missing for more than a decade as an investigative reporter. My desk is covered with old newspaper clippings and photos of missing children, their images frozen in time, their whereabouts still unknown. In the case file on my desk are the sketches of the young couple found murdered in the woods off Wallaceville Road in 1981. Jane Doe, 701, and John Doe, 703, scribbled in pencil next to their reconstructed faces. So who were they? My search for answers took me to a surprising source. An investigative genetic genealogist in Albany, New York, named Allison Peacock. On any given day, Allison Peacock wakes up at 7 a.m., brews herself a pot of coffee, and sits in her navy blue armchair inside her upstate New York home. Laptop in hand, her Catahoula dog named Buddy at her feet. Allison uses DNA from a crime scene or from unidentified human remains to find close genetic DNA profiles or matches. Allison grew up in small town East Texas. Her interest in genealogy began as a hobby 15 years ago. She's warm and personable, diligent and persevering, and as I'd come to learn, passionate about her work. This isn't a job for Allison Peacock. It's a calling. How did you first get involved with this case? I got involved with the case while I was an independent contractor operations manager for a company called Identifinders International. And one of our genealogists had been reading about this case on the internet and just prior to my joining the company had been having conversations with the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences. And they're the people that handle the remains of all of the unidentified people in, in the Harris County area. So she had reached out to them and asked them if we could do DNA on it. And so when I came in, it was still kind of languishing, looking for funding. And I knew that we had gotten a grant from AudioChuck, a podcast company. And I decided it was the perfect case to put that funding to. And so we called them and said, hey, we've actually got the funding. Can you ship the remains? And so they did. Allison explained to me how in 2021, she and her coworker, Misty Gillis, used DNA profiles extracted from the couple's remains to search consumer databases for possible relatives. From there, they built out these family trees, which then helped link the remains to relatives in other states. They were ultimately able to identify the couple through those connections. We have to extract the DNA from the piece of remains, and it's usually either a tooth or a bone. And we extracted DNA, and then it gets sent to a different lab to do the whole genome sequencing. And that is the Cadillac of all DNA tests that can tell you everything about a person and who they're related to. We upload that to a DNA database called GEDmatch. And GEDmatch is an open source place where people can come and compare their DNA so that if they're looking for a biological family member and say they tested at Ancestry, but maybe their cousin tested at 23andMe, they're more likely to find each other if all of the people from different companies upload to GEDmatch. It's just a big open source place to exchange information about your DNA. When you uploaded the DNA profiles with these two sets of remains, did you get any hits? What happened? Yeah, each case generates as many as several hundred hits. 
And as genealogists, we often have to solve two or three other associated cases that we find in the matches to further our own investigation. We've had to do that with almost every case I've ever worked. If you understand who is in GEDmatch and why they're there, you'll know that the people there themselves often have mysteries they have to solve. And then from there, you build out these elaborate family trees. Is that right? You're looking for common people in the tree. When you notice that you see Bob Smith in the trees of three different matches, you kind of figure that the person you're looking for is related to Bob Smith. While Allison was using DNA to build out family trees and find names for the two victims, Misty was using the scarce amount of visual evidence to identify the Jane and John Doe. Misty is unassuming, plain-spoken, no-nonsense, and a force. She cracked her first case with Identifinders only two months after joining the company in 2019. As of today, she's got 16 solved cases to take credit for. I look at unidentified remain cases. I came across Dean's unidentified remain profile. And the picture that they had, the reconstruction, the visual image that the artist made caught my attention because you're looking at a lot of different reconstructions. A lot of them aren't in color. A lot of them are just kind of silhouettes of heads. And when I saw that picture, it drew me to it. So I clicked it and that's when I noticed that it was tied to another set of unidentified remains that was a female. And I saw her picture on there as well. And I have to say, I I was extremely intrigued as soon as I started reading through the report of basically what happened and why they're unidentified because it's very rare to find unidentified remains together. I mean, you might find a couple of males together in the same sex if it's a dumping ground for, say, a serial killer. You know, you might find a couple of females, but to find a male and female together that are unidentified piqued my interest. I wanted to know the story behind it. Were they lovers? Were they siblings? What could have happened to them that they were so young that they were brought together in death. Allison and Misty's efforts were a success. After four decades, the unidentified victims found in the Houston woods finally had names. 21-year-old Harold Dean Klaus Jr., known as Dean, and 17-year-old Tina Gale Lynn. I called the detective and said, you know, we've made incredible progress. We asked them to run background checks. Luckily, Dean lived in a state where we found his birth certificate online, so it was really easy to find him. Tina's birth certificate was not online. We called the detective and he said, you know, I've got 500 open murder cases on my plate and I'm not sure what kind of information you need, so you guys just make the calls and let me know what you find out. So that's what we did. We started making phone calls. Allison, with Misty on the other line, then made a phone call that would confirm everything they'd found thus far. The call was made on a fall day in October 2021 to a home in the quiet beach town of New Smyrna, Florida. So I called Debbie Brooks in Florida, who is Dean's older sister, and I left a message for her. Within an hour or so, she called me back, and I was so happy that she did. And I said, do you have a family member that might have been missing for a really long time from your family. And she said, oh my God, yes. Yes, my brother, Harold Dean Klaus Jr. And so I found myself in the position where I had to let her know that 
he had been murdered years before. What was that like for you? It's awkward, but at the same time, when you know you're giving somebody information that they've been desperately longing for for a long time, it's a blessing and you kind of put your discomfort aside. And so when I told her that, her immediate reaction was, are you serious? Really? He's been dead all this time. And then almost immediately she said, well, what about his wife and his little girl? And I said, well, he was found with a female. And then I said, well, wait, he had a baby? And she said, yeah, what about the baby? I think 10 different things hit my brain all at once. The implications that a baby had been with these two people that were murdered hit me just really hard. Just all of the implications of what that must mean. As it turns out, Dean and Tina Klaus had a 10-month-old baby named Holly Marie. But the child wasn't found at the crime scene. So where was Holly? Could she be alive? Who killed her parents and why? Did you think perhaps the baby could have been in the woods and just not found? That wasn't the first thing that came to me. Debbie told me the story about them leaving and going to Texas for work in construction. And so I thought, well, gosh, maybe they were driving to Texas and ran across somebody that saw this beautiful blonde hair, blue eyed baby at the gas station and wanted the baby. You know, I just didn't know. I was shocked. I was floored because, of course, that's not anything we could expect. It's emotional for me. There's honestly a whole range of emotions on that. This case is very hard twofold as a parent because not only are we dealing with the large mystery of what happened to this baby out there and is she out there, is she happy, is she healthy, did she survive? Did she perish when her parents did and her remains were removed from the scene by an animal? There's so many different endless possibilities, but also just the pure fact of Tina and Dean were so young and as a parent, to be in Donna's position, to to be in Tina's parents' position, and to find out that that's how your child met their demise, I can't fathom that kind of heartbreak and that kind of pain. And I feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, as much as everybody says, Well, at least they have closure now. What is closure? Closure is not knowing that this is the end that your child met. Debbie Brooks quickly shared the news with her other siblings. They then informed Dean's mother, Donna Casasanta, the matriarch of the family, that her son and his wife had been murdered, and that their baby, Holly Marie, who'd now be 42 years old, was missing. It wouldn't be long before the story of Dean and Tina Klaus would go viral. A 40-year-old mystery reaches a shocking conclusion. The family had just moved from New Smyrna Beach to Texas for a job opportunity. Their bodies were discovered months later. The couple had been murdered. Their baby was nowhere to be found. We'll continue with our story after this short break. When I first met Houston Chronicle reporter Sinjin Barnard-Smith, I didn't know what to make of him. Sinjin is from New England pedigree, a graduate of the Boston Latin School with Ivy League credentials. He's gregarious and irreverent, edgy and quick-witted, and competitive. Very competitive. I wondered if Houston was merely a temporary stomping ground for him, a place he didn't intend to call home for too long, 
before moving on to a larger paper like the New York Times. Wow, was I wrong. Over a dinner of crawfish and noodles, I quickly learned that this was a guy who cared deeply about the people of Houston and the events that impacted them, including the unsolved murders of Dean and Tina Klaus. Sinjin was the first reporter to break the story about the couple's identity in a lengthy article that ran on the front page of the Chronicle on January 11, 2022. Sinjin, how did you first learn about this case? So back in early January, I saw that I had a direct message on Twitter and it was from someone I'd never heard of who worked with a, a company that I'd also never heard of called Identifinders International. And she said, hey, I've got a story for you. And it was about two cold cases that they'd solved in Harris County with an interesting twist. So when I saw this, you know, my antenna went right up and it seemed to be great story material. The next day, she sent me sort of a brief description of the story. It had the the building blocks that I needed to get started. A description of the crime, description of the victims, and the twist, right? Which was, where is this couple's daughter? From there, I did what I do. I contacted the genealogists involved in the case. I contacted the family, got some really great interviews there. And just over the course of a week, built out this story that I got to admit is one of the most interesting I've ever written about. What are some of the first things you learned when you jumped into this? For 40 years, this couple has never been identified. And it turned out that they'd been a couple from Florida, from a town called New Smyrna. Um, Mm -hmm. A man named Harold Dean Klaus and a woman named Tina Gale Lynn. They had been married. They had left Florida in 1980 to come to Texas to start a life here. Um, Dean was a carpenter and he was working construction for a company here. And then there was this twist that they'd had a young daughter who'd never been found, right? There was sort of an immediate kind of a holy shit moment, right? How old was the baby? Did you know? At the time when their bodies were discovered, she was about 10 months old. And Sinjin, what was going through your mind about the baby? This is the thing, right? The idea, though, that there's this puzzle in a puzzle about this little girl. Where is she? What happened to her? I'm a pretty hard-bitten journalist, right? I've been covering tough stories for, for more than a decade. And there are really only a couple of scenarios, right? The child died in the woods with her parents and, you know, right. She was just a little child, you know, so Mm -hmm. did a, did a scavenger or predator carry her off? I mean, it's, it wouldn't be surprising to me at all if something like that had happened or that, you know, she was kidnapped and perhaps the killers killed Dean and Tina to, because they wanted to take the baby. I mean, right. You've, you've certainly read stories about. Oh, absolutely. And I've covered so many missing children throughout my career and, I know just based on facts that the odds are not good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's always that talk, right, about the first 48 hours. The first 41 years, right? I mean, it's just, to me, it seemed like I I wouldn't even know how to begin to start investigating something like that. So, Sinjin, looking at the case file, um, there wasn't much found at the crime scene. We know that there was a bloody towel and a pair of green gym shorts, waist 25 inches, probably belonged to Tina, we don't know. Where's that evidence today and can they test that for DNA? That's a great question. It's my understanding that that evidence is basically gone and we don't know what happened to it, that it may have been destroyed back in the 90s. 
And that's really unfortunate, right? Because as I said, this is a very tricky investigation and to lose a, a critical potential piece of evidence like that makes it so much harder for law enforcement to try to run this down. Especially we've come so far with DNA technology compared to where we were in 1981, which was pretty much, you know, non-existent. Um, so that is really unfortunate. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I've covered cases now where you're reviewing DNA, which is just a tiny, tiny minuscule of forensic evidence, stuff that probably wouldn't have even registered even 10 years ago, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, so you have to wonder if they did have that evidence, is that something they, they could have generated another lead from? And so after your story was published and got a lot of traction, and you were the first reporter to break this case, what, what came about after that? Did, you know, did detectives decide to reopen the case? The thing about homicide investigations is that law enforcement agencies will tell you they're never actually closed. But mm -hmm. this definitely did kick law enforcement into a slightly higher gear to sort of decide to take another look at it. So the story drops, generates a tremendous amount of interest, which obviously as a reporter, you like to see people respond to your stories. The sheriff's office ends up taking up another look at the case. But interestingly, up in Louisville, which is a community near Dallas, police there open up a missing persons investigation for Holly. And that's because Louisville was the couple's last known address. If a department was going to take that on, it would have been that department. And then about six weeks after the story runs, the attorney general's office, their new cold case unit, takes this case on essentially as its first case. Had you ever covered anything like this before? I've covered a lot of horrific stories, but I've never covered something quite like this. Just from a storytelling perspective, this is almost a perfect story, right? You've got a disappearance, a murder, a twist, a break in a case, but that only leads to another question, you know, another mystery. It's like a Russian doll, a murder, a mystery within a mystery within a mystery. I like that analogy. The wooden Russian dolls, you open one and there's another and then another and another and another. Exactly. You know, you've got suspense, mystery, and at the end of it, a small measure of joy. And it's been an amazing story to cover. So this case is far from over. Yeah, that's absolutely true. As I was reporting this case, you know, I trying to understand more about Dean and more about Tina, their dynamic, anything that might shed some light on this case and about who they were. And then I learned something else that was really interesting that when he was 15, he'd had an involvement with a cult. What was this talk about Dean joining a cult? I felt like I was investigating a mystery wrapped in another and yet another. I decided it was time to hop on a flight to Florida and meet the Klaus family for myself. I wanted to learn everything I could about Dean and Tina's lives in Florida before they relocated to Texas. In the next episode, I'd learned that Dean was a good student and a skilled carpenter. But he was also a bit of a vagabond, a searcher. And he had secrets. All dressed in robes, including my son, okay? I said, General, what is going on? Who are these people? And he goes, oh, Mommy says, I've joined this group. You didn't have a good feeling about it? No, I didn't have a good feeling, no. 
That's next on What About Holly. Listen to What About Holly ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.